I will tell you, when we look at literacy in America, we're only asking people to be able to read to the sixth grade level. Sixth grade, when technology requires a little bit more than a sixth grade education. And we probably have 70-ish percent of the population at the sixth grade. If we don't change that, how are they ever going to understand the complexities associated with healthcare? Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. You know, I say every week, I am so thrilled to have you as my audience and the fact that you took a few minutes out of your day to listen to this podcast. It's called Denise Cooper, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. And I'm so super proud and ecstatic today because I have achieved my 100th episode. Yay! Can you imagine a hundred guests sharing their wisdom with you and me, helping us all figure out what it takes to get from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow. That's what Closing the Gap is about. And that's what I want for you. There are so many resources out there that tell you to do this. And then there's one that contradicts that. And then there's another one that contradicts this. And none of them have you in mind. They're always from the perspective of somebody else telling you what to do. And what I want to do with this podcast and what I hope my guests are doing for you as you listen to each and every one of them is to first educate you on what the topic is. Second, what I really want you to do is to take one or two things, one step consistently done over time, achieves amazing results. Don't try to do everything. Just do one thing consistently. And I promise you, if you do it your way, mix it with your lifestyle and your goals, even if you don't have big long-term goals, you'll get further along then if you just stay where you are because you don't know what to do or everything is so confusing. And the third reason that I started this podcast is because I care about you. I care about that you have a place that you can come and get some information that's going to help you make better decisions. I care about your life. I care about you learning how to navigate people who sometimes just trigger you, that the work you're trying to do just doesn't seem to get to where it needs to be. And as a leader, you're not always able to figure out what it takes to motivate, inspire, and enable your teams to be able to do amazing work in a way that is both inclusive, and I'm not talking about race and gender and gender identity, et cetera, but making sure that everybody who's on your team really feels like they have a voice and that using their brain to help the business succeed, to serve customers, is really what it's all about. Because when we are of service to someone else, it makes us feel good. So that's why I do this. 
And today, you may or may not know, if you follow me on LinkedIn, and I encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn, you'll know that I took a position as the chief people officer for a company called Pack for You. And you can look it up. And in fact, I encourage you to go to this link, meet Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-E-R, today. And you will see that one of the devices, one of the technologies that we bring to the world, because the vision and mission of this company is to bring health equity and to help keep people in their homes so that they can live a full life and they can feel good about the fact that they have the power and the control over their life to be able to do it. We primarily concentrate on people who have high medical regimens, medicine regimens. So they take a lot of pills every day. And if you've been a caregiver or you are a caregiver, or you might be somebody who is responsible for having to take a lot of pills or a lot of medications every day, sometimes it can get confusing. And our mission is to help take that confusion away, to stop the guesswork. But to do that, it's much more than providing the technology, which is what this company does. It's really educating the population, everybody, no matter who it is, on what is healthcare inequity or equity in general. Too often, much of what we talk about when we talk about equity has to do with weight, race, or gender, gender identity, ethnicity, religion. It's, it's shaped around the Seventh Amendment. But there's a bigger problem that we have. And by shaping it only around the Seventh Amendment, we create other inequities and disparities in America. And that's what I want to kind of help you see today. As always, when I'm doing these wonderful little chats with you, I have my trusty assistant, Alexa Greer. How you doing, Alexa? Hi, Denise. And Alexa's just going to be asking some questions to help facilitate the conversation. I've asked her to be curious because I think when she's curious, she thinks like you do. And so those questions get asked. The other thing is, is that if you're interested in this topic or you have a comment or you want to talk about it, you always can get access to me. And I encourage you to go to my website where we have a community, which is called Mighty Networks. Right now it's free. So join the community and ask questions, learn. We're on a road and on a mission over the next year to fill it up with content so that you don't have to search the internet, search magazines, talk to 50 people, but we can point you to answers around careers, leadership, and communication. How do I communicate in a way that inspires others, gains the buy-in necessary, and keeps things moving along fairly nicely? What does that take so that our lives are lower stress and that we achieve more of what we want? And so that's the point of having Mighty Networks. It is all of us together learning from each other in a civil private, confidential way about how to make our lives better. And through our collective knowledge, all boats rise. So I don't care who you are, please join. Listen for a little while. See if what we're doing is something that you would be interested in joining. But today on the 100th episode, we're going to be talking about healthcare and the systemic inequities in the way we do it in America. So 
as I said before, Alexa is going to be the person who asks me a couple questions and I'll try to figure out an answer. So Denise, the first question that we have today, in your words, what would equitable access to healthcare look like in America? Wow. So you really started with the sun, the moon, and a couple other solar systems today. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> oh, so let me tell you what I think it is. And also something that I think is easy for anybody to understand. Equitable healthcare means giving everyone, every patient, the care they need when they need it. It's that simple. When you need it, you get it. The Institute of Medicine reports that if we put health equity first, there's so many other benefits that we can get by providing care that does not vary from person to person, age, demographics, income. If we do not vary in the quality because of those characteristics, then we achieve health care equity. Does that help? Yes, that is helpful, Denise. I don't know if if you've come across this or how this relates, but I, I read recently something that said that 80% of healthcare outcomes are based on social determinants. How does that line up with what you just told me? Let's talk about what a social determinant is. So there's many, many studies, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and I know people are, have all kinds of emotional feelings about that, but healthcare in general understands that there's social determinants, and those things are conditions in the places where people live and learn and work and play, raise their family, where you live and relate in the world that can have a wide variety of impacts on your health and the quality of your life and those social determinants, things like education, access to healthcare, economic stability. And that, you know, when we say economic stability, we're talking about, can you get a good job? Not just a job, but a good job, one that provides security for your family. Do you have food security? Do you have housing stability? Meaning, can you afford to buy a house and live in it? Environment. So the quality of the house the distance and proximity to environmental hazards, pollutants, those kinds of things, as well as the proximity to crime and violence in general. And violence is not always what's in the street. Sometimes it's what's in our home, both verbal abuse as well as physical abuse, as well as mental abuse to some individuals. It's also about things that are negative factors that happen to people because of other systemic issues that we have in our society, such as discrimination based on incarceration, things like a sense of community. And do we feel safe in our community? Do we like our neighbors? Do we participate? Do we have friends? And I mean, real friends who are there to positively help us stay focused on it. So if you think about it, it's, it's, like five determinants is what they talk about. So it's education, it's healthcare, it's economic stability. Can I get a good job? Can I get food? Good food, not just any food, but good food. What does my environment look like? The quality of my house, whether I have pollutants or environmental hazards, and then social and communal factors. Do I have friends? Do I have to live within thinking about I'm going to be discriminated against or I'm not going to be liked? Let's just put it that way, because of who I am. So with those factors, 
we can scientifically, or research analytics, we have metrics that determine people who have more of these factors in their life are more likely to be sick. There's a difference between being sick chronically, which means it doesn't go away, and episodic, which means that basically, you know, I get a cold and the cold goes away. Or, you know, my appendix bursts and then I need a surgery and I get that. I break an arm away. Those things get fixed relatively quickly. They don't have necessarily lifelong things. But chronic illnesses, things that have to be managed, like things like diabetes, which is growing in America day by day. And certainly the numbers of pre-diabetics is growing because of the amount of stress and the issues that we're having in our food supply in general are growing more and more every day. So we're getting more diabetics. The fact that we don't exercise enough and it's not so much about exercising like you see bodybuilder people, but moving on a regular basis. Those are all factors that say, if you continue to do these things over time, your body is going to break down and it's going to break down in a way that you're gonna have to change your lifestyle to manage that part of your life. Absolutely. And I feel like hearing you talk through this, I'm also very aware that across the United States, inflation is rampant right now. Mm -hmm. And and it's getting worse. It's going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) Right. And I mean, we're recording this in in June 2022. Things are not... (laughs) things are not going well in that department. So how does that factor into what could be a toxic environment for somebody to be pursuing health goals? Before I answer that part of it, what does that mean? And what's the longer term point on that? I want to make it clear that this issue of healthcare inequity really is beyond race, gender, et cetera. We have a multitude of rural communities in our country that people don't talk a lot about. And I'm not downing or saying that the issues in an urban community are not important because the same social determinants are there. But I want people to understand that when you live in a rural community, access to healthcare is pretty pretty bad. I'm in North Carolina. We have some communities that to have a baby, a woman has to drive over an hour to get to a hospital. So more than likely, she's gonna have a baby in the car. Getting prenatal care is pretty difficult. We have veterans who have to drive a long way to get to the veterans hospital to get the kind of care that they need. And it's not because of anything other than they wanted to live in a small town, probably where they grew up in a community that's probably feeling really good to them. And it's a lifestyle choice. And so because of their lifestyle choices, they have a higher determinant factor than a community that may not choose to do that. And so this idea of healthcare inequity, I don't really want to talk about it. And I'm not saying that race and gender and all those things don't have an impact, but I think it's much more complicated by that. And when we narrow it down to just those issues, what happens is, is we marginalize the issue and people go, well, that's not my problem because I don't have any of those other determinants over there. When the reality is a good portion of Americans live in areas where healthcare inequity actually exists. So now back to kind of your question of how do these determinants happen? And with inflation, what does this mean going longer term in it? Well, inflation basically means that it's, it's going to cost us more money to buy the things that we have that are considered necessities of life. And it comes from the fact that we've had two years of COVID. Yes, 
that the country shut down, the supply chain and where we get our food, where I get our gas, oil, all of those things are clogged right now because we shut things down and it takes a while to ramp things up. And in the process of ramping it up, it means the availability of those things goes down and the price always goes up because it costs more to bring those things to market than that is passed on to the average consumer. So it costs more to make bread, the price of bread goes up. It costs more to get fresh vegetables, price goes up. The fact that we had long-term other issues, you know, we didn't have people to come and pick the fruit during COVID. So now there's a problem with vegetables and fruit that just rotted. And now we're starting over and we're not allowing people to come in to this country whose job primarily was to make sure our food supply and our food chain was safe and stable. And so all of those things contribute to the fact that we now have inflation. And unfortunately, that problem is going to continue into the near future. It's going to take us a while to right the ship. Inflation now creates more disparities in healthcare. Because remember that one thing about economic stability? That's a problem. The fact that we can't find teachers, that's a problem. The fact that we don't have enough in these rural areas of a income base because we don't pay people livable wages creates a tax problem so that the schools and the water company and others, the roads, all of those things have to raise prices. And so the cycle continues. And the fact that it gets more and more difficult for us to have a healthy life costs us more money, causes us to sacrifice that. And therefore, we wind up with more problems because of healthcare inequities. Thank you for breaking that down. It's tough times right now, which kind of leads into the next question, because I know that many people who listen to your podcast are leaders, they're managers, they're responsible for a team of people. And I guess my question to you is how should managers take income and privilege into account when leading their teams, knowing that issues like inflation, like healthcare inequity are part of the equation for pretty much everyone right now? Well, I think part of it is that we need leaders who are really capable of understanding how to do strategic thinking. And, you know, Dr. Joan came on, she's one of the earlier podcasts. I encourage you to go back, look and listen to her, her story about why we don't, we don't do strategic thinking well. What has been rewarded in our country for most leaders is individual contribution, that heroic leader, that person who comes in, has all the ideas and then tells everybody what to do. But in complicated times, it takes a community of thought and different ideas, creatives. And I'm not saying that people who are really good at getting things done aren't valuable and that isn't something necessary. But I think we have to begin to start reimagining what work really looks like and that this is part of how we have to think about work in the 21st century. You know, there was a whole thing about the new normal. And I think when people said, oh, yeah, we're in the new normal, that was mostly the elitist kinds of individuals talking about it. But who's helping the average person understand what the new normal is really about? Who's helping that franchise owner of the McDonald's in those communities where that's the biggest employer or that community hospital or the city government? Who's helping them reimagine what the new normal is? Helping them see 
where we need to go. And I'll tell you, when we look at the social determinants, in my mind, and I'm not sure anybody else would agree, so this is a Deniseism, and I fully own my own Deniseisms. The one that has the most impact on whether a community is going to thrive is education. If we don't take the time to change the literacy rate and the quality of education in this country, what we see now is going to continue into the future for a very long time. We need an educated population so that they can make decisions around what it looks like. I will tell you, when we look at literacy in America, we're only asking people to be able to read to the sixth grade level. Sixth grade, when technology requires a little bit more than a sixth grade education. And we probably have 70-ish percent of the population at the sixth grade. If we don't change that, how are they ever going to understand the complexities associated with healthcare and taking care of their body? Knowing the difference between chronic management versus episodic management. How are they going to be able to have the financial literacy that allows them to understand how to manage their money, what inflation does to them, and to make good decisions when they're electing local officials? How are we ever going to be able to help people understand the food supply and the food chain and to understand that all work is good work and that we have to have a community willing to do all kinds of jobs and allow people to do them with grace and dignity? Those are the things that we have to begin to start doing. And when I say literacy, I can tell you because I've been a coach and I've talked to other coaches and I know a variety of coaches who specialize in some things. There's a whole group of coaches, executive coaches, who spend their time teaching literacy, reading and mathematics to senior executives at some of the largest companies. So this isn't a problem of what we think are poor people or people who are only making you know, $17 an hour or who didn't finish high school. We have some college graduates, can't read, don't have comprehension skills. So this is a universal problem. And they're all hiding because if someone knew, what would be the consequences of it? Would they lose their job? Probably. Not because they aren't doing a good job, but we have the stigma that says if you're not a college graduate, then clearly blah, 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 blah. Honestly, what I'm gathering from this conversation is that it's really complex Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's nothing to be embarrassed about, about not knowing the the layers of this problem. I think that if more people knew how many moving pieces were going on, we'd have a better chance at kind of pulling at it from different sides, because it really is something that's bigger than the individual level. Yeah, or individual group. But I do say, and I do believe that if we focused on education for anybody and everybody, If we made learning really about a lifelong process and we recognize and reward people for learning in a lifetime over and over, because you're not the person that you were when you were six years old. You're not the person that you are at 20. You're not the person you're going to be at 30. You're not the person that you're going to be when you hit 60 or 70. Life is a journey. And at every stage, technology changes things new ways come up. Who would have thought that we'd have driverless cars 20 years ago? Who would have thought 20 years ago, and we're just talking 20 years ago, that we'd be having rides into space for fun? No no other reason than I just want to do it. Who would have thought that 
we'd be talking about the metaverse. Life changes, new ideas come. And the only way to stay current and to have the ability to control your life is through adopting an idea and a mindset of life learning. That's why we do the Mighty Networks. That's why I coach. That's why I do these podcasts. I find people who are going to help you continue to be on a journey of life learning, to help you make good decisions about what it is you want. Small steps consistently done over time. Amazing results. I think that's a a good lead into our our last question for the 100th episode, which is what should businesses be doing to support the health of their teams? What is the actionable item that people should be taking away from this? Well, let me put it this way. The biggest lever so that you can walk away with the one thing out of this. One is education. And I think that in every company, you you have to begin to look and decide how are you going to reward people for continuous learning? The other thing that I would say is, is that I think you need to help upgrade your HR department said that before, mostly privately, but I I really do think it has to, we have to begin to think of HR less of this department that provides benefits and healthcare and salaries and much more around how do we really say people operations? What is it that we need to do to do wraparounds? And I'll give you a couple examples. So one example is, is that when I worked for the gas company, we had a union. So this is not something that you can do all by yourself. But we, I had to sit down and talk to them about, we have to get better at controlling healthcare costs. And there's no law. I know everybody says, oh, HIPAA says we can't get. Well, when you're a plan provider, you can take aggregate data and do analysis around it. So this whole idea of data-driven decision-making has to become part of it. Again, lifelong learning, data-driven decisions. And so what we did was we asked for the top five disease states that were driving 80% of what our, our costs were. And they were things like, you know, heart attack, diabetes, using the ER for children's asthma, high blood pressure, people not taking their high blood pressure and medicine and what that did, and soft tissue injuries. Because, of course, we have people who are physically active, jumping in and out of holes, repairing pipes, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we worked out with the union was we created centers where people worked and picked up their equipment every day. But we also started doing things like, you know what, one of the reasons in the drivers is of, of healthcare issues is the fact that they're on the go all the time. They only get 30 minutes and they're stopping at McDonald's too much. They're stopping at Burger King. They're picking up a hot dog or something on there because it's quick, it's satisfying, and it gives them enough energy to get through the rest of the day. So we began by creating menus and samples of what they could get really quick within the 30 minutes and eat it and help them. We set up pop-up clinics so that when they came in in the morning, somebody was there to take their blood pressure to make sure they were doing it. And let me tell you what we found when we did that. We, one day we found that we had a, somebody who was sick. Blood pressure was over 200. I think it was like 200 over 85 or whatever. I mean, it was bad. And because we had a doctor on staff, he was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how this guy's doing it. And you know what we found? He wasn't taking his medicine. But by publicizing the fact that we had to put him in an ambulance and get him to the hospital, went through the workforce pretty quickly. And we began people taking the medicine. We began sending flyers home to parents, the moms, dads who were staying at home, taking care of kids, telling them what they could do to eliminate the fact of taking their kids to the ER to control their asthma. 
we started advertising and talking to people about what could we do to help you manage your diabetes. And so by little changes of educating, creating an environment of lifelong learning, we were able to reduce our costs over time by 17%. It can be done. In another company, one of the things we had was, you know, there's a safe harbor 401k match. Some of you don't know exactly what that means. We didn't have enough of our, all of our population paying into the fund. So we then began to have educations on how you can take a little bit of money and make a lot. And we educated them on financial literacy. Suddenly, we didn't have a problem with safe harbor anymore because everybody began to participate. And we made games of it. Gamification is a great way to get people to do. And we had circles where people did it. And all of this was before we had all the technology that we have today to be able to do this. This idea of a wrap around our employees is really what employee engagement is about. And HR is going to have to step up to the plate to start thinking about employees as people operation. What does it take to have a healthy, the well-being, the mental well-being, the physical well-being, the financial well-being of our population so that they can contribute at their highest ability, as well as be able to integrate a full life so that they're happy and healthy and they produce other happy and healthy citizens. That's just a Denise-ism. Thank you so much for the interview, Denise. Where can people keep up with you? Well, of course, there's always the website in Mighty Networks, right? But of course, you can always, you know, tag me on LinkedIn as long, you know, you know I'm, I'm there and I'm just around. You can always send me an email through my website or you can tag me at LinkedIn. You can follow me on Instagram. I've got a business Facebook page. I'm not much on Facebook for personal stuff. And I'm on Twitter. So you can always just chat me up any which way makes you comfortable. Thank you so much for your time today, Denise. I'm really excited for people to get to listen to this. And as always, grateful to know you. Hey, I hope it helps somebody. And as I always say, if you liked it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will be a conversation that will help you close the gap. And with that, see ya. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.